0: Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. It is the final healing story in Mark's Gospel. It is the final event before Jesus enters into Jerusalem and all that follows. So, friends, let us continue listening now for a word from God, hearing these verses beginning with the 46th of the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now many rebuked Bartimaeus. They told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So the disciples called to the blind man, saying, cheer up on your feet. Jesus is calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. Friends, these two are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our sermon today is titled, When Jesus Calls. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, call us now. Through your spirit, God, provide a bridge from this ancient story to today, to times that are anything but clear. Oh God, we do pray for your spirit to stir that the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight Might be pleasing for you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Phyllis Tickle, the late church historian and theologian, had a theory about reformations, what she called rummage sales. When Tickle looked back across the span of history, and particularly the history of the Christian church, she noted that reformations tend to happen every 500 or so years. Each of those times, the church endures some form of upheaval, some kind of cataclysmic change. It always comes out the other side intact, but it also always comes out different. Think about it. Today we mark 500 years since the Great Reformation, that historical time when out of one church, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, came this thing called Protestantism. 500 years before that was the Great Schism of 1054, when the Roman Catholic Church split with the Eastern Orthodox Church. 500 years still before that was the Council of Chalcedon, perhaps a lesser known Reformation in 451, which, among other things, led to monasticism and scholarship, things that helped to preserve the Christian faith in the ancient texts through the Dark Ages. Five hundred years still earlier, of course, was the event that turned the world on its axis, that changed everything, the birth of Jesus, of Emmanuel, of God with us. Tickle doesn't really use this language, but as you read her, you begin to think that perhaps a common characteristic that each of these rummage sails holds is that they each begin with blindness. Spiritual blindness. To something, to someone. Right? I mean, think about John's gospel. John telling the story of that first reformation, the birth of Jesus, writes in the very first chapter of his gospel, saying, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. The world did not know see him. I think Martin Luther, that German Catholic monk and priest and scholar, I think he sensed in his times back in the 16th century a certain blindness. And not just to indulgences, right? That's what we're often taught was the primary cause of the Reformation. But in fact, there was so much more. There had been well over a century of just gradually building pressure in the church and in Europe. If you go back to the 14th century, you find this time when there was not one but three popes claiming authority. One in Rome, one in Avignon, and later, for good measure, one thrown in in Pisa. Three popes vying for this seat that up until then had been known to be the divinely authoritative figure in the church. What does one do when there are three people claiming such divine authority? Also in the 14th century, there were raging wars, intercultural, interreligious wars that brought with it amazing amounts of human suffering. There were people like John Wycliffe and Copernicus who were poking holes in previously held assumptions. Things like, the Bible should only be printed in Latin, why not in the common tongue of the people? Or Copernicus looking to the sky and saying, maybe, just maybe, the earth isn't the center of the universe. And like fuel on the fire came the printing press disseminating all of these ideas. Those 95 theses that eventually came from Luther that may or may not have actually been nailed to the front door of the cathedral in Wittenberg were not the cause but rather the spark. The spark that casts light on ideas and thoughts and observations to which people had previously been blind thoughts and ideas like the efficacy of communion and the timing of baptism the role of the clergy all of which people began to see in an entirely new way my favorite line in this story of bartimaeus is that line the disciples speak to him after he has cried out to jesus and jesus hears him and says bring him to me The disciples say to him, cheer up on your feet. Jesus is calling you. Some of the other translations render it slightly differently. They have the disciples saying to blind Bartimaeus, take heart, have courage, get up. He is calling you. It's hard to wonder if Luther did not hear those words echoing in the book of Romans where he found the premise for that justification by faith alone. It's hard not to wonder, too, if you do the math 500 years after the last great reformation, if we, here today, are not also living in a time when God is calling us the church, the church of Jesus Christ, to have courage to get up, to follow, to see the world in a new way. It's hard not to hear those words in this story and wonder if perhaps, just perhaps, there are things that we are blind to. I read a commentator this past week who suggested in her reflections on this story that perhaps the dwindling church memberships and disappearing young adults and shrinking denominations of our current church landscape are not signs of a dying church, but rather signs of a church that has lost its soul a church that is more interested in preserving the institution and maintaining the status quo than it is proclaiming a love which redeems, a love that renews, a love that literally can bring dead things back to life. She wonders if the church has lost its soul. If there are things that it and we as its followers are blind to. If it's any comfort, the threat or the possibility that the church has lost its soul is not a new phenomenon. Those who study history, of course, know that history tends to repeat itself, does it not? So I was intrigued when a few months ago a friend of mine in the ministry sent an email about another German Lutheran, this one about a hundred years later after Martin Luther, a man named Philip Jacob Spainer, a Lutheran theologian in the 17th century who ministered to a church that he believed was struggling to find its soul. Spainer looked around and he saw... Sanctuaries full of people that seemed to think that Christianity simply meant adhering to a set of intellectual possibilities, of intellectual propositions. Sanctuaries full of people who thought that if you just know the right answers about God from the Bible and from the creeds, if you just show up Sunday after Sunday, then you are a Christian. In 1675, Spainer wrote a book called Pia Desideria, which is translated Pious Desires. In it, he lays out six proposals for the church that he believed had lost its soul. Six proposals for how to renew that church and to invite its followers into deeper faith. It's amazing how work 400 years ago, still seems so applicable for today. Here are the six proposals that he wrote of. Number one, he proposed that the church should engage in earnest and thorough study of the Bible in private meetings of what he called little churches within the church. So basically, have Sunday school. Start some small groups. The second proposal he had was to establish a laity that will share in the spiritual government of the church. So basically, be more Presbyterian. A bit ironic for a Lutheran theologian, but we'll take it. The third proposal was that the church's knowledge of Christianity must be attended to by the practice, by the practice of it as an indispensable sign and supplement. So basically, he was saying, practice what you preach. Fourth, he said, instead of merely didactic and often bitter attacks on the heterodox or the unbelievers, the church should adopt a sympathetic and kindly treatment of them. Translated, in my words, less dogmatism and more welcoming. Fifth, he proposed a reorganization of theological training of giving more prominence to the devotional life, and finally, a different style of preaching that replaces pleasing rhetoric with a focus on the implanting of Christianity and the soul of which is faith and its effects, the fruit of the life. I read these proposals and I thought to myself, these are words for the church today. I mean, what if the church, if us here, committed to a faith like that? To a faith that transforms the heart as well as the mind. To a faith that seeks a living relationship with God. A faith committed to less dogmatism and more genuine welcome. To study, to practicing what we preach. To letting the scales of cynicism and blind prejudice fall from our eyes. To not just saying, but living those fruits of life those fruits of the spirit, those qualities and characteristics like compassion and love and patience, gentleness and humility. What if, in other words, the church recommitted to a faith that has courage to do what is right, to get up, to hear, and to follow. I found out about the events of yesterday via a text message thread that myself and a number of other pastors on our island have, including on it Rabbi Rachel Bregman of the Temple in Brunswick. I surmise that she found out about the events as well on that text message thread because her first and only words for a long while on it were simply, Oh my God. Late yesterday afternoon, Rachel sent a message to us asking whether or not we would come and attend an event at the temple, a time tonight for prayer and fellowship and bread. She wanted to know if we, her Christian brothers and sisters, would be there. Within seconds, to a person, every one of us replied with a single word, Yes. You know, it doesn't feel much like courage to say yes to an invitation like that. God knows it's going to take a lot more people saying yes and a lot more courage to help prevent invitations like that from ever having to be extended again. But at least it's a start. You see, friends, here's the thing. Bartimaeus is an outsider. In this story, he is the one the text tells us who is rebuked. He's told to be quiet. Some of the other translations say that Bartimaeus is shunned by the crowd. Bartimaeus, in other words, is a person who I think could relate to a minority community reeling in the wake of human hate and evil people in our own community who know all too well the very real consequences of living in times when anti-Semitism and white supremacy are on the rise. And yet what amazes me about this story is that it is the very cry of the outsider. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. It is the cry of the outsider. Friends, will you be there? It is the cry of the outsider in this story that becomes the very occasion for the crowds that are present to glimpse the sheer magnitude and power of God's grace and love. If not for Bartimaeus, the blind beggar on the edges of the crowd, crying out, this occasion for God's love would never have come into existence. You see, I said yes to Rachel's request, not just because I love her as a friend, but because this story reminds me that when the church and when its followers, you and me, when we lack the courage, when we lack the ability to hear the outsider, to see and to name the humanity that is in every other person, especially the vulnerable in our midst, the religious minority, the immigrant caravanner, the abused, the addict, the prostitute, the bullied, the beggars, if we are unable to see the humanity in them, then we too are blind. We too have lost sight of that love of Jesus Christ that is the very soul of the Christian faith and of the church that seeks. To share it. We too have missed an opportunity. To glimpse the fullness. Of God's grace. And power. Friends. On this Reformation Sunday. Be the spark. On this All Saints Sunday. Cast light. Join your voice with all the saints who have come before and all the saints who are yet to be by saying yes. Yes to practicing what it is we preach. Yes to serving others. Yes to welcoming the stranger. Yes to transforming your heart as well as your mind. Yes, to refinding and reforming the soul of the church by first refinding and reforming your own. Friends, when Jesus calls, and Jesus will call, have courage. Get up. Be healed. Say yes and see. See for perhaps the very first time the grace of our God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.